You are listening to a message from City Church of Richmond, located in Richmond, Virginia. We are a broken people, loved by God, continually restored by Christ, and sent out to worship God, serve our city, and work for its renewal. To learn more about City Church and to find out how to get connected to our community, visit our website at citychurchrva.com. That's C-I-T-Y-C-H-U-R-C-H-R-V-A.com. And thanks for listening. My name is Harrison Ford. I am one of the pastors here at City Church. It's great to be with you all. Happy Sunday after the women's retreat, too, to all of you who celebrate. Um, Now, I'm playing for keeps. Now, I'm playing for keeps. That was... The last thing that I heard before as a sixth grade boy, uh, I was made to look like an absolute fool on the basketball court at my school. Me and some friends, uh, it was kind of a pre-class thing. Me and my friends were doing a one-on-one tournament, and I was uh, uncharacteristically on fire. I was knocking them out left and right, and because that happened so rarely, I was taking full advantage of it. I was trash-talking like there was no end uh, to me. And apparently I was causing enough of a ruckus that I caught the attention of one of the uh, upperclassmen who was also in the gym at the time. He was a junior. He was on our varsity basketball team. And he walks over and he says, hey, do you mind if I hop in? And he actually, like, he's a really, he was a really good guy. And I think he was just trying to have this moment of, Uh, kind of, you know, chopping it up with the younger guys, trying to be kind of a role model of sorts. But the problem was um, that I was still blinded by my glory. (laughs) And, you know, he was taking it really easy on me. He was very obviously playing down to my level. I did not notice that at all. I thought that I was completely hanging with him. And at one point, I popped off uh, a three-pointer right in his face. And in the way that only a sixth grader could do, I went ballistic. I started hopping up and down and hitting my chest and going, come on! And I was just being as annoying as possible. And that's when he picked up the ball and he kind of laughed to himself. And then he uh, just trounced me for the next like 10 minutes. It was absolutely brutal, so much so that it gathered a crowd of the rest of the people who were in the gym at the time. And it stopped only because uh, our basketball coach had pity on me, and he blew his whistle and said, everyone needed to go to class. Well, today, in today's text, uh, we're going to read about one of God's I'm playing for keeps moments. We're continuing our sermon series in Exodus, and we're looking at the second cycle of the plagues, right? So the plagues go in these cycles of three. We're looking at plagues four through six today. And what characterizes this cycle is intensification. The plagues get worse, and their message becomes increasingly clear. The God of Moses is playing for keeps. But what we see is that while Yahweh's judgment upon Israel intensifies, so too does his mercy towards those who fear him. So while we consider this passage today, uh, we should at once be sobered by the awesome power and judgment of God. But 
at the same time, we should also, by the intensity of his love, be awed into singing like we did earlier. Praise the Lord, his mercy is more. So if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles or in your worship guide. We're going to look at Exodus 8, verses tw- verse 20 through chapter 9, verse 12. So 8, 20 through 9, 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me, or else... If you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day I'll set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies will be there. That you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I'll let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I'm going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked, and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go then the lord said to moses go in to pharaoh and say to him thus says the lord the god of hebrews let my people go that they may serve me for if you refuse to let them go and still hold them behold the hand of the lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field the horses the donkeys the camels the herds and the flocks But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All of the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over the land of Egypt, and become boils, breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh, 
And Moses threw in the air, and it became boils, breaking out into sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all of the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be found pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You know, one of the best ways to get to know someone is to experience them when they're in a stressful situation. You know, they may not be exhibiting their best self, their ideal self, but they'll be showing something of their true self. And we see this dynamic at play in today's text. As the plagues intensify, Pharaoh becomes more desperate, and he starts to show more of his character. And in a similar way, this is true with Yahweh. Now, to be clear, Yahweh, God, is not stressed here. He's not straining to intensify the plagues. But nonetheless, the intensification of the plagues are clarifying as to who God is and what he's about. And this makes sense because really the plagues are an answer to, what Pharaoh, to how Pharaoh responded to um, Moses and Aaron when they initially asked uh, to have the people let go. We see this back in Exodus 5. Pharaoh says, Who is the Lord that I shall obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I won't let Israel go. There were many deities in Egypt and certainly more beyond in the foreign lands. And they all claim to be Lord. So in Pharaoh's mind, he's thinking, who is this? Who is this Lord that comes to me and is demanding uh, the Israelites be taken away from me? Well, the plagues are God's answer to that question. They're a revelation to Pharaoh and to us of his character. And so this afternoon, I want us to see two things. I want us to see that the plagues reveal that God is both the sovereign Lord and the loving Lord. He's the sovereign Lord and the loving Lord. So let's look first at the sovereign Lord. As Eric said two weeks ago in his introduction uh, to this section, the plagues are part of a spiritual war that's going on to find out who is sovereign over the world. Who's in charge? Is it Yahweh or is it the gods of Egypt? And so to prove himself to be Lord, Yahweh launches a full frontal assault over all aspects of Egyptian life. And I want us to see this in three ways. First, I want us to see that the plagues show that God is sovereign over the natural realm. You know, if you think about it, uh, God could have sent you know, the archangel Michael with Moses when he went to Pharaoh. He could have sent a, you know, this powerful warrior angel to intimidate him, to let God's people go. Or he could have uh, even given Moses powers. He could have uh, given him like the, uh, the Darth Vader you know, claw. You know, Moses could have uh, closed his grip and choked out one of the magicians and said, if you don't let us go, this is what's going to happen to you. But instead what we see is that God reveals his power and he issues judgment upon Pharaoh through very natural means. 
he enters into this protracted process in which he turns creation against itself. In the same way that God created everything, he made the world in Genesis 1 to 2, we find that here he is unmaking the world through these plagues. And we see a picture of this in, uh, in how the order in which these plagues progress. It gives us this picture of comprehensive chaos that's come over Egypt. You know, you think about it, it starts in the Nile, and then the frogs come up from the Nile onto the land, and then from the dead frogs, they come gnats and flies into the air, and then from the flies, they inflect the livestock, and then after that, it moves from livestock to uh, the humans, and the, and the livestock get boils, which are these open wounds that would have been incredibly painful. And so what we see is that the plagues are, are slowly progressing like a wildfire through the order of creation. From the water, to the ground, to the air, to the animals, to the people. And what it's showing us is that Yahweh, because he's the creator of all, he's sovereign over all. And if he removes his hand of care, everything falls apart. We see this also with the intensification that goes on in these plagues. You know, the first cycle of, of the plagues, they would have certainly been a nuisance. But this second cycle is so much worse. The second cycle is more than a nuisance. It, it threatens the very livelihood of Egypt itself. You think about the, the gnats and the flies that would have attacked the crops. The um, livestock obviously provides food. And then the boils are on the Egyptians themselves, so much so that they can't even move. Egyptian society would have ground to a halt during the plagues. And so the point here is that God is not some abstract idea, something that uh, exists purely on an immaterial or spiritual plane, but rather God is sovereign over creation. He's sovereign over material. He is all of it, you, me, the world, everything is from him and through him and to him. So we see that he's sovereign over all the natural realm, but then we also see that he's sovereign over the spiritual realm as well. You see, the plagues, as much as they are going through um, this natural means, they are very clearly an attack upon Egyptian religion, upon Egyptian spirituality. For example, uh, throughout Egypt, bulls were viewed as symbols of fertility. And because of this, there were cults. There were bull cults. They would worship the bulls. And even bulls were a part of the pantheon of gods in Egypt. Uh, Apis was a god that was portrayed as a bull. And his mother, Isis, which you might have heard of, she often is depicted uh, with the head of a cow. And so in, in killing off livestock with these plagues, God is showing, the, is, is showing the Egyptians that there is no life, literally no fertility, outside of him the egyptian gods can't keep the promises that they've made we also see that these plagues target uh, the leadership of the egyptian religion we see this with the magicians you know in the first cycle of plagues the magicians are able to somewhat match what moses and aaron are doing they're able to make the nile turn red they're able to make 
frogs come up from the Nile. Then they get to the third one, and they look and say, we can't, we can't reproduce this. And then after that, it's downhill for them. Because by the time we get to the sixth plague, the plague of boils, we find that they can't even stand up. And even more than that, boils uh, were considered ritually and ceremonially impure. And so this is a, a full frontal attack and subversion of the entire religious and spiritual system of Egypt. God is showing that he is the one true Lord over all. But perhaps the most pointed and meaningful attack of the plagues upon Egypt is upon Pharaoh himself. You see, throughout all the plagues, we read this recur- there's this recurring phrase that comes up about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. We see sometimes it's attributed to God doing it. Sometimes it's attributed to Pharaoh himself doing it. And to help understand this, again, it's helpful to think about Egyptian religion. You see, uh, Egyptian religion was structured around this concept called ma'at, M-A-A-T. And it was this guiding or governing principle that if you lived according to these, uh, these ethics, these rules, then you would be in balance with ma'at and you would uh, keep chaos from coming into the land. Of course, we see here too that, um, well, in Egypt, the Pharaoh was seen as the lord of ma'at. He was kind of the prime keeper of this governing principle. And he was supposed to represent balance with this principle. But what we see with uh, chaos coming in to Egypt and creation being overturned, it's showing that even by Egypt's own religious standards, Pharaoh doesn't measure up. It's showing that God is judging him. Now that brings us to um, this idea of the hardened heart. You see, in the, the Egyptian view of the afterlife, what would happen is your heart was put on a scale and it was weighed against the feather of ma'at. And if your heart was light, if it was in balance with ma'at, then you would go into uh, eternity. But if it was heavy, if it was weighed down with sin and vice and injustice, it would tip the scale and the person would be devoured. Now you can probably see where this is going, but one of the words that's used to describe the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is, uh, can also be translated as made heavy. So in the plague narrative here, what we find is it's saying that Pharaoh's heart is being made heavy. It's a polemic against Pharaoh himself. It's saying that he has come under the judgment of Yahweh. And think about how meaningful that would be for the people of Egypt. The people who, the worst thing in life that could happen to you is to be out of balance with ma'at. And here it's not just anyone, but it's Pharaoh himself, the intermediary between humans and the divine. And so what we see here is that Yahweh is showing us that not only is he sovereign over the natural, not only is he sovereign over the spiritual, but he's also sovereign over the heart. Now, why have I given you this long delve into Egyptian spirituality? Um, I think that the lessons from this are just as important today as they, are, as they were then. 
The lesson being, if you look to anything else for balance, for order, for stability in your life, it is going to ultimately fail you. You know, you think about the gods of our rival kingdom. We introduced that term uh, two weeks ago. You think about the gods of our rival kingdom, money, power, pleasure, success. They'll never give you what they promise. But the good news is that the God who is the sovereign Lord is also the loving Lord. And because of that, unlike the gods of the rival kingdom, he will never fail. He'll always give what he promises. And that brings us to this next part of the text that I want us to see, this idea of God, Yahweh, revealing himself, not just as the sovereign Lord, but as the loving Lord. Because you see, as we see this intensification of God's judgment, we also see a corollary intensification of his mercy. I think this is clearly seen in how the cycle of the plague, this cycle of the plagues don't affect the Israelites. You know, they, the first cycle did affect them. They were left uh, with the Egyptians. All of the plagues that happened, it would happen to the Israelites. And this was in and of itself a kind of mercy because it was God showing the Israelites what would happen to them if they chose to go with Pharaoh instead of with Yahweh. But here, as the judgments intensify, so too does his mercy as he spares the Israelites from uh, the effects of these plagues. And we see that he does this in, in uh, chapter 8, verse 23, by making a division between Egypt and Israel. He's making a literal separation between them. And he's uh, doing this by saying, I want you to physically go. You know, he goes to Pharaoh and says, I want, we are going to physically go out of Egypt into a land where we can worship God. He was wanting to create this division, this separation between them. But it's not just a literal separation that's going on. It's also a spiritual and a symbolic separation. You see, the idea of the, uh, the Israelites going into the wilderness, it would, have been, um, it would have been the Israelites going into the wilderness to worship God while the entire Egyptian religious system is being utterly destroyed. And those, uh, the, the, the worship that the Israelites would do in the wilderness, it would involve animals, animal sacrifices. All the while, in Egypt, the livestock are being killed. And this travel and this sacrifice, this would be a physical work. All the while, in Egypt, uh, the people are coming under this plague of boils that brings them to their knees. And so what it's showing us is that uh, not only is there the separation, the sparing of Israel from the effects of the plagues, but also Israel is getting everything that the Egyptians want, but they can't find in their false gods. And it's telling Israel that that can only be found in Yahweh. Now, Again, I want to suggest that this applies to us today as much as it does to them. You know, God has called us as his church to be his holy, set-apart people. That was true of Israel in the Old Testament. It's true of us now as the New Testament church. This is why Jesus in John 17 says that we're supposed to be in the world but not of it. We're supposed to be a holy, set-apart people as a mercy both to us and to as we'll see, to the rest of the world. 
But, you know, I don't know about you, um, it's hard for me to actually think about what does that idea of being in but not of, being the separate holy people, what does that actually look like? I remember uh, hearing about this in high school and thinking that, well, me being separate meant I'm going to listen to Reliant K rather than Blink-182, and I'm going to wear those Christian novelty t-shirts. Do y'all remember those? Um, there was one that said, instead of Abercrombie and Fitch, it said a breadcrumb and fish. And that was me thinking that was just like the Israelites coming out from under the Egyptians. I was separate, in but not of. Obviously, so it's not that. What does it mean to be separate? What does it mean to be in but not of? Uh, I want to give you three diagnostic questions that I think can help us start to think about what that means practically for our life. The first is this, um, where are you tempted to seek security and identity outside of God? Where are you tempted to seek security and identity outside of God? If you remember uh, two weeks ago, that's how Eric introduced the idea to us of a rival kingdom. It's something that provides security and identity. For the Egyptians, it was Ma'at, and it was uh, Pharaoh. So what is it for you? Is it success? Is it money? Is it self-actualization, kind of this internal sense of I know who I really am? And if you need help answering that question, you're thinking, I don't really know where that is for me. Let me ask you this. Um, What do you daydream about? You know, when when your mind has nothing else to think about, what do you start to think about? Is it your next vacation? Is it the home remodel? Is it a promotion that you could get? Now, none of these things are inherently bad. But when they occupy inordinate amounts of our, uh, our mental imagination, it begs the question in us, are we embedded in the rival kingdom? Are we walking in the way of the kingdom of the world rather than the kingdom of God? So that's the first question. The second question I want you to think about as a diagnostic is this. Uh, what influences you to look for security and identity outside of God? You see, we don't come to these things purely on our own. We're social creatures. And so oftentimes uh, we're influenced by, it could be a specific, maybe a friend group. It could be the neighborhood that we live in. It could even be our coworkers. What influences you to seek security and identity outside of God? Who's encouraging embeddedness in a rival kingdom for you? Now, It may sound trite, but I honestly think that one of the most important ways that we can answer this question is by evaluating our social media use. To be quite frank, I I think that if if you don't think it has such a powerful, formative effect on your heart, you're naive. And I know that because I so often try to uh, I so often try to make it seem like it doesn't for me, but I know it does. And you know who tells me? My family. So what I want to ask, uh, or what I want to challenge you to do is the next time you're scrolling through your social media, take a moment to ask this very basic question. Are these people that I'm reading, are these people that I'm being influenced by, are they seeking, are they pushing me to find my security and identity in God or in something else? It's a very basic question, but it starts to become revealing to us as to the influences that we spend so much of our time looking at, scrolling through throughout the day. 
Now, so we've got those two questions. Where are you tempted to find security and identity of God? Where, what influences you to do that? Here's the third question. Based on how you answer this prior to, what might you need to do to create some critical space between you and those influences? Now, I use the word, the phrase critical space here intentionally because what I mean is it's building enough distance in between you and these influences to recognize how they're influencing you into a rival kingdom. You know, um, in some scenarios, as we think about this, it might mean you literally looking and saying, you know, I think I need to literally leave my job. Like my workplace has become so um, corrosive to my spiritual state that I need to leave it. I need to find something else. Or maybe you, you look at your neighborhood and you say, I cannot drive into my neighborhood without immediately engaging in keeping up with the Joneses' uh, practices. Or maybe it's a friend group. You say, I cannot hang out with this friend group without trying to find my identity and security in something outside of Christ. Maybe you do need to leave, leave those. But I, I actually think that more often than not, it's going to mean actually staying in those spaces and putting counterformative habits and disciplines in place so that those things then influence us towards God while these other so that we can be in these spaces while they're influencing us towards uh, an altar kingdom. And what I want to suggest is that by virtue of your being here today, you're actually participating in one of the best things that you can do to help you cr- uh, keep that critical distance. It's participation in the life of the church. Word, prayer, sacrament, the fellowship of the saints. These means of grace are going to be the most powerful thing in rooting your identity and security in the kingdom of God rather than in a rival kingdom. And so, uh, to make it, to put a finer tip on it, to make it even more practical, here's what I want to suggest. Throughout your week, try not to spend more time on social media than you do in the word, in prayer, in worship, and with other Christians. It sounds like such a simple low-hanging fruit thing to do, but I promise that if you commit to it, if you commit to not spending more time on social media than you do participating in the life of the church um, and participating in the means of grace, then you'll find incredible reward, and you'll find yourself less and less tempted to be embedded in the rival kingdoms. Now, in conclusion, what you may not realize as you do this is that not only is this uh, separation or this critical distance going to be a mercy to you, but it's actually going to be a mercy to the people around you. You see, in being separated from Egypt, the Israelites became a witness to God's mercy to the Egyptians. So while the Egyptians were suffering with boils, they could look over at the unaffected Israelites and know that there was a way out of their pain. They could see that Yahweh gave to the Israelites what their gods failed to deliver. And we actually see the effect there are the results of this later on in the, in the um, Exodus narrative. We get to Exodus 12:38, and it says that there was a mixed multitude that went um, out of Egypt with the Israelites. And that phrase, mixed multitude, is used elsewhere in the New Testament to to indicate um, a a multi-ethnic group. And so what it means is that there are Egyptians who left with the Israelites from Egypt. Why? Because 
they saw Yahweh's love for his people. And because of that, they decided to uproot their entire life and go with them. Because, I want to suggest, they, what they saw in the Israelites was a witness to the reality that mercy triumphs over judgment. That mercy triumphs over judgment. And as we look beyond this Exodus narrative unto the life of Jesus, which is the truer and the greater Exodus narrative, what we see is that this is the very heart of the gospel itself. The, by the cross of Christ, mercy triumphs over judgment. And that, my friends, is what it means to be in but not of this world. It's what it means to be separate. It's what it means to have critical distance. It means to be someone who is so thoroughly shaped by the love of Christ that your life becomes an embedded, embedded or sorry, an embodied invitation into the mercy of Jesus. And so, the question for us today is, are we going to do that? Are we going to be people who receive the mercy of Christ so that we might then live out the mercy of Christ and invite others into it? Would you please pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story. We thank you that... Um, there's a certain mercy in realizing that you are the judge of all and that you are rightful to give judgment. Father, I pray that you would impress that upon all of us, um, that you would make us rightfully uh, stand in awe of your sovereignty and your power. But at the same time, Father, would you warm our hearts by seeing that the way that you exercise that power and sovereignty towards us is in the cross of Jesus Christ. Would you help us to look towards him and to see and believe and trust that mercy truly does triumph over judgment. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.